Welcome to everyone. So today's speaker is uh, Osman Ismail, and uh, he's a CTO and co-founder of Bedrock System. And the talk, the, the topic about today's talk is uh, is the the TCB, so the concept of TCB and problems in applying in practice this idea on real-world software. Thanks for the introduction. So good afternoon, everyone. So welcome to my talk, the TCB from assumption to insurance. But uh, first, a little bit about myself. So uh, my name is Osman Smell. I worked at uh, Sun Microsystem and Sun Microsystem Labs. I worked on network protocol stack uh, a long time ago. I worked on PPP when modem was a big thing. So you can see how old I am. So I also work on Java Virtual Machine for Embedded when Sun was trying to target the Embedded system. And I also work on microkernel. Uh, so I then, uh, uh, 2000, I, I uh, left Sun. I joined a startup in the Silicon Valley called TerraSpring, and we were doing data center virtualization uh, using all the management interface of the uh, equipment to recreate uh, a compute and network and uh, uh, storage element. And then <clears throat> this company would uh, get bought by Sun. And after two years, uh, so I went back to CERN. After two years, uh, I left CERN again and joined FireEye. I was a founding member of FireEye. And FireEye is known for the first product for malware detection using virtualization. It was a very successful product. We had a very good, very good uh, uh, customer was very happy about that project. And uh, today I'm at Bedrock System. So I'm a co-founder and CTO of Bedrock System. And Bedrock, the Bedrock idea was uh, uh, started a few months after I left Farai's uh, with discussion I was having with a previous colleague like Ashraziz and Udo Schneidberg on how we can reuse some of the technology we work on in the past to recreate a secure and strong foundation for the software stack of the new IoT world. That was the idea when we uh, started uh, two years ago. So about the talk, so uh, the talk is about TCB. So I will define what the TCB is, and then I will also describe a real case application, expose what are the problem. I will propose an alternative, then go to conclusion. And after that, I will take questions. So what is a TCB? So the first uh, definition of a TCB appears in November 1979 with a specification of trusted computer bits. And it was refined and well known, in fact, for the definition that uh, appears in uh, the Orange Book in December 1985. And the text says, the trusted computing base is the totality of protection mechanism within the computer system, including hardware, firmware, and software, the combination of which is responsible for enforcing security policy. And security policy is, as usual, around confidentiality, integrity, and availability. But if you up-level a little bit, what you should think about is what do you trust to run your application? What do you trust to run your system? So this is what the uh, TCB is about. I want to introduce uh, two uh, important properties that I will use during my talk uh, to expose different problems and different solutions that we can have around those. The first one is the TCB parameters, which define the set of API which control the access to the TCB, and that will be access from the outside to the TCB and access from the TCB to the outside. And the other important notion is the notion of security or protection domain, which is a collection of objects that a process has access to with its level of privilege. Right? So it's really about access control mechanism to provide protection against unauthorized access to some data. So a real case application, 
and uh, let's see what the problems are. So for a real case application, I took a web server because we all uh, are uh, facing or using a web server every day. So to uh, set up a web server, you need the hardware and some storage for storing your data. There's the firmware which go with uh, the hardware. Then you need an operating system kernel. And on top of that, you will need a web server a cache, usually they go together, and um, some runtime plugin like PHP, Python, JavaScript, or Java, and a database to manage your data very efficiently. And the question to ask is, what is the totality of protection mechanism responsible to enforce integrity, availability, confidentiality of my data, right? Furthermore, so in that picture, in that architecture, we have two uh, clear separations. So there's one, between the hardware and firmware uh, to the operating system. It's somewhere in the firmware, a little bit blurry where exactly, but it's somewhere defined in the firmware, enforced by the firmware. And then there's uh, the kernel and user space privilege enforced by the operating system, which define protection between application running in user space and those application running in kernel space. Kernel being a higher privilege uh, component. And you also have the separation providing by the kernel, enforcing by the kernel, where every application have a separate address space and it's not supposed to see each other or touch each other data, right? So in that picture, what is a collection of objects the application must access? So if you go from a network frame to the uh, data that uh, the web server will provide. So you obviously need CPU and hardware, we all need that with some memory. And uh, the operating system will need to have a process scheduler and some kernel virtual memory management to drive those components. You also have a network interface card. On top of that, you will have your uh, network driver, which drives the network interface card. You will have a network stack and a network API, which bridge a gap between the kernel and user uh, privilege. Uh, same for storage, uh, you have the hardware associated to storage. You need to have a driver which control and drives this uh, hardware. You need a file system. All the modern operating system has a notion of file systems this day. And you need this API which also crosses this boundary between user and kernel privilege. So in that picture, what is our perimeter? What is the API to enforce access control between each component, right? And an important rule in practice that we always have to remember is every enforcement function running at the same privilege level of its enforcement point can be disabled by the, control, the component it controls. Basically, it means inside a security domain, if one component is compromised, all the security domain is compromised. Right? And in that architecture, in this picture, if you have a malware or a, a problem inside the operating system, and that can be anywhere inside the operating system, and this operating system can be Linux or FreeBSD. So it can be in the USB stack, it can be in the Bluetooth uh, stack or in the PCI driver. So this particular uh, malware will be able to tamper with your file system API, which will also be able to uh, disable your network traffic and have access to your data, right? So the uh, question to ask is, is this, real is, is how, how complex is that stack, right? And, and uh, uh, how can we measure the complexity of what we are uh, dealing with? So I took a very uh, uh, known uh, uh, um, 
pattern, which is uh, uh, the defect density of code, which measures the number of line of code, obviously physical line of code, not blank light of comment. And I use CLOCK, which is an open source component, which does the job uh, very well. And there's been a lot of study about uh, uh, what are the defect density, defect density being the number of bugs per thousand line of code. And the industry average is about one to 25. You can get way better with a, a very strong development process, but still, but I will look at that open source because this is where the innovation come and this is mostly what we run these days. So we all run, and in a cloud, we all run a Linux kernel with those open source server. So there's been a lot of study in particular by uh, Coverity, which is a static uh, analyzer, which ran a study around uh, defect density on open source component. And depending on the line of code that you have for the user space program, those are uh, the defect density is about uh, 0.69. The Linux kernel has a special treatment because it's very critical. Like I said, it's a, a more privileged component. And, um, and it ran, they run uh, uh, those analyses very regularly and they compute uh, an accurate defect density for the Linux kernel, which is around 0 0.39. So if you look at uh, the and, uh, web server, because we are in the real case of a web server, so I took uh, the Apache web server and you can see from the early uh, 90s, when or late 90s, when Apache started, the number of line of code was around 100,000. And then it grows significantly over the year. And now uh, with uh, around 700,000, if you take the defect density of 0 0.69, that's give us uh, 488 potential bugs. So a more interesting component will be the Linux kernel itself. So what I did is I, I took the Linux kernel uh, Git repository, which is used for uh, releasing all the version of uh, Linux. And I built a kernel going back on time to the uh, tag inside this repository. I went back and built a kernel for x86 and ARM and look how many line of code there were in uh, at that time. So if you, and the Git repository was going back until 2005, I had nothing before that, but since you can still see that the number of line of code grew from uh, uh, 3 million to uh, 17 million. And, and that's for a kernel component, even with the defect density as uh, uh, 39, it gives us a potential of uh, uh, 6,800 potential kernel bugs. And, and I, I put the reference in the, in the slide at the end. Uh, you, I encourage you to go and check those coverity report and you will see how serious those uh, exploits are and uh, how they get uh, uh, treated. So uh, what about a component on top of that? So I look at uh, uh, System Loader. It's a program which is responsible to bring your uh, application in memory. So this component is responsible to guarantee integrity of what you're gonna run. And, and, and this particular one, U-Boot, is mostly used on the ARM platform. It's very well used on pretty much all the other platform. And um, it doesn't get the same treatment with Coverity, but I took the uh, same uh, defect density because it's a, a smaller amount of uh, line of code, but also it's a very critical software. I, I, I assume that people will pay more attention to those kind of software, but we still have 558 potential bugs. So, and we can also look about firmware. So there's more and more open source reference implementation of firmware. 
and I took the arm trusted firmware, which is, uh, and I look uh, uh, that implementation for the Cortex A. And this is responsible to manage the interface between the operating system and the secure world. So it, it deals with uh, all the power state coordination and all, all the critical aspect of the hardware. And it stays alive during the life cycle of your application. So the uh, kernel will sometimes use those API uh, provided by the Trusted firmware. And you can also see that the number of lines of code grew significantly over the years. And with the same defect of the city, it still gives us around 100 potential uh, firmware, right? So, and if you look at other firmware, like the UFI reference implementation, and or the SEPI, which is used on x86 mostly, but more and more used on ARM, you will see that we have the same level of complexity a lot of codes and, and uh, with uh, uh, that defect density, a lot of potential bug. And those bugs at that level, privilege level are obviously very important. So why are all the low level software stack growing so fast, right? So why are they uh, moving uh, uh, as, at that speed? And if you look at the evolution of the hardware, for example, in the Cortex-A, you will see that from the 8.0 architecture to 8.6, which is the current one, all these little uh, bubble represent the feature that the hardware has introduced. So you have more and more hardware feature and, and uh, the developer has to provide function for that. So that grows uh, uh, the code base, obviously. And, and you can also look at um, the ARM reference manual, for example, which gives you the specification of that uh, architecture. And, and from four years ago, when I look at ARM, was the, the, the manual was about uh, 3,000 pages, and today it's around 7,000 pages. So that's a complexity uh, a kernel uh, engineer has to grasp in order to implement properly those functionality. Right? So we have all those potential bugs, but as we all know, there's real thread around that. And I wanted to look at the evolution of those thread over time. And uh, so, uh, a lot of you probably know those history, but uh, it first started in, uh, no, it's not first started, but the, the most famous one was in 1988 with the Morris form, which really raised the awareness of the danger of having those kind of threat on, over the internet. So, and, and then 1996, we had uh, this uh, publication about uh, uh, the attack surface. What, how can you get those in practice and that was very popular so people understood how easy it was using a, a stack based overflow uh, technique to take advantage of a system right 1997 was obviously an interesting pivot point because uh, it and you can see this whack-a-mole game that happening in that space is so uh, when the uh, stack overflow happened there was a mitigation about how you manage the uh, stack the memory allocated to the stack and uh, a year after that, people come up with new techniques, which was return to libc. So you didn't need to execute from the stack anymore. You can just jump to existing code. And that was a precursor of all the uh, return-oriented programming for um, those attacks, which was also a very um, uh, important in, in the space of uh, the way the thread involved. So 2003 was also an interesting um, type of attack, which was uh, uh, an attack using a side channel over the network to tamper with an open SSL implementation. The, the interesting point there was it, 
this particular attack was able to break confidentiality in the software without any bugs. And that's still a very hard uh, uh, case to uh, uh, model, but uh, 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 it was really using side channel associated to the hardware. Uh, in 2007 and 2014, there was a lot of paper about, about microarchitecture attack, and um, they've been around for some time. So we've been talking about them recently, but they've been around for some time. They were uh, mostly uh, targeting a small um, uh, cryptographic card using uh, power consumption uh, or heat consumption from those to look at uh, side channel. In the side channel, every time you have a difference of behavior or phenomenon that you observe, you can infer uh, the behavior of the software <clears throat> and that's become your side channel. 2014 and all those uh, microarchitecture attack was really targeting confidentiality. They were stealing crypto keys and, and they were really breaking confidentiality. 2004 was another pivot point where uh, a, a side channel attack, a hardware attack mostly, was uh, able to break integrity of software without any bug. So Rohammer was able to change the content of the memory and change the behavior of a program. So that also was very uh, uh, an interesting point. And uh, 2018, we had the well-known spec meltdown, which was uh, basically based on, on the linkage from the uh, microarchitecture associated with the side channel. And this is where the side channel become more important because the linkage itself, it's a problem, but it's become very relevant because you have the side channel which can uh, show that you can steal information. Using those techniques, 2018, we had foreshadow which broke the uh, software software card extension from Intel, SGX from Intel, showing that uh, this particular uh, feature of the processor, which was supposed to give you confidentiality and integrity, but confidentiality was broken using uh, those kind of uh, techniques. And after, again, the Wacamole game, after putting some remediation uh, from Intel, people come up with, uh, came up with a zombie line, which was another type of attack using kind of the same technique, but showing that we can also break <coughs> SGX uh, uh, confidentiality. So what's interesting to note over the years is all those attack is going down closer to the hardware, which like I said earlier, the complexity of hardware moving up provide a bigger attack surface. And since the lower you are, the more privileged you are, it's more interesting for an attacker to get control over there than focusing on the other uh, uh, application in user space. So hardware exploitation, just a, a little uh, word on that. Like I said earlier, it's a combination of microcode linkage and side channels. They have to go together. Like Spectra is a, a spe speculation execution leaking cache and there's a, a side channel on cache, mostly time channel, but uh, uh, timing side channel attack. So what we have to realize is those vulnerability in hardware are hardware issues. So they have to be fixed by hardware. And if you level up the, the hardware microcode, it's software, right? It's, it's just using lower primitive at the hardware, but it's software and you get update. It's like a regular uh, software uh, lifecycle system. And any mitigation in the operating system will include performance loss. If you try to avoid having those problems in the operating system, 
the, you will slow down the system, which kind of defeat the purpose of the optimization of the first place, right? So like Linux kernel introduced the uh, KPTI, the uh, kernel page ta uh, table isolation for uh, dealing with spec and meltdown. And that induced like 5% to 30% sometime depending on your workload. So it's a huge amount of, uh, of uh, performance penalties that you have to pay in order to mitigate those hardware problem. And we had discussion with customer in our case where they didn't want to pay that price because when you put a mitigation like that, you also need to make sure that you have a way to disable it when the hardware will be fixed. You cannot put a, a, a new design or a new architecture in place, which will stay forever and pays its price when the hardware involved, right? So that's uh, the issue with those attacks. So what's the alternative, right? And what the goal we want to achieve uh, uh, through an alternative. We want to make sure that we can constrain <coughs> the TCP perimeter, so have control over the API that's needed at each layer. Also strong control over the security domain, how you can uh, provide minimum access uh, at each layer, privilege access at each layer. You obviously cannot change the world and propose a new, completely new language or new software. You need to support legacy application and there's a lot of good innovation happening in open source. So, and obviously what you really want is to zero defect density. So no more bugs. So the TCB parameters, so how can we attack that problem? And for that, I would like to introduce microkernel. So, Microkernel was very popular in the 80s and everybody was, everybody was trying to run on top of a microkernel and Mach was one of the most popular ones. There was Corusist uh, in uh, France also, which was very popular. But it broke down in the 80s, mostly because of uh, performance. It's what uh, Jürgen Linke in his first presentation at SOSP called the IPC dilemma. Uh, so everything was uh, really, uh, slow because obviously for the microkernel you have more component in user space and you have to pay the price of the, for the IPC and most of the IPC at that time was around uh, 100 microseconds so that was maybe it seems uh, okay at the time but it was really the the bigger problem of why the microkernel was slow and Jürgen Linko pr proposed in, in the following paper that he presented at SOSP in 93 and 95 a blueprint of how microkernel should be built and that was the beginning of the family of L4 microkernel which uh, nowadays is very well known and um, if you look and, and the problem uh, uh, around those uh, uh, IPC was really uh, to minimize the cache footprint and the TLB misses, was really focusing on where is the real bottleneck and how you can build uh, a, a microkernel which can uh, be optimized at that level. So if you look at uh, Nova Micro Hypervisor, which is uh, one of the latest L4 uh, microkernel, a message pacing latency uh, round trip in a new uh, internal architecture is uh, in nanosecond now. So you have uh, around uh, 500 nanoseconds. So it's a factor of thousand. So we, and, and most of the L4 microkernel will measure the latency uh, in cycle. Uh, so you have to, to, to look at the uh, time as well, depending on the frequency of your CPU, but it's really, really low now. So this is not a problem anymore. Furthermore, the footprint of those microkernel because of the new uh, blueprint proposed by Jürgen Linke, is very small. So you really have to implement the, min the bare minimum inside the kernel. And I'll come back to that. So after the IPC dilemma, I think this day we can talk about the IPC advantage. And what the 
the advantage that you have, and I just cited three, which I think are very important, you get modularity, so you have better design, so you can well define your APIs, which target these uh, TCP, per TCP parameters I was talking about. But you also get composability, right? So you can build uh, your uh, user uh, requirement, the specific user requirement by taking component, the one that you need. But more importantly, I think with the IPC, you get, you have a way to observe the behavior of the overall system. Suddenly you can see how uh, component interact to each other, right? So you can do monitoring, logging, you can diagnose your system. It's, uh, it's, it's giving you more visibility. So, and and. Like I said earlier, the performance not being an issue, it would be uh, it's very important to take advantage of all, all those uh, 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 property. And, but obviously, like Jorgen uh, uh, stated in his paper, uh, this has to be built uh, using strong design principle. Right? And uh, one of them is the uh, principle of minimality which state that a concept is tolerated inside the microkernel only if moving it outside of the kernel will prevent the implementation of the system required functionality, which means you put the bare minimum in the kernel. If something can run outside, then there's no reason to put it inside. And, and that's definitely something you can apply to all the components of the system. If you write a, 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 a driver for driving with storage, you're not going to put the USB uh, the implementation inside the same uh, piece because this, this driver for USB will work perfectly outside. So you can constrain your uh, module and your implementation at the bare minimum. Right? The other uh, design principle that uh, uh, I would like to expose is the principle of least privilege. And, and that's really around access control. So what you want is every program and every privileged user of the system should operate using the least amount of privilege necessary to complete the job. And that's really to damage any issue you will have uh, associated to a bug, right? So you don't have to give an application root privilege because you have to have access to a specific uh, resources. Maybe what you can do is to reduce the, the uh, uh, privilege of that resources and unify those two at the same privilege level. So what about security domain, right? Which is all about how can we get fine-grained access control? Right? <clears throat> and for that, I want to introduce object capability. So object capability, there's two sides of that. There's a kernel side. So for, for the kernel point of view, a capability is an unforgeable pair made from an object identifier and a set of uh, rights associated to that object, right? So, and that can, that object can reference a kernel object of a, or a hardware, but in the kernel, it's, it's a strong uh, composition of the, that object and the rights associated to that object, which is very important. From the user point of view, the capability is just a selector. So the user will just have a number and that number define the object and the right associated to that object. Right? And, and the user can only do operation associated to what's given from that selector and only the kernel nodes, right? So for example, you can, uh, if you have a, a semaphore inside your uh, microkernel, the semaphore can be exposed as a capability. And if a user process uh, uh, asks for a semaphore, <clears throat> the kernel can decide or one of the component in the system which is responsible of distributing those capability can decide you're going to get the semaphore but you're not going to be able to down on it you can only do up 
and and that's the only operation that will be enforced by the kernel every time this object will be referenced. At the Unix level, you can think of capability, an example of capability like file descriptor. So file descriptor will be a good example of capability which reference a file and the access that you have on that file. And, and when you're using that uh, uh, integer in uh, Unix, uh, you don't know which file or you created it or you inherited it. So you kind of know what it is, but you only had the operation that has given to you by the uh, owner of that capability, right? So in microkernel, L4 microkernel, all the memory resources are exposed are capability. Even your scheduling context are exposed to capability. So you, you have a capability for time, how you're going to get scheduled as a user space application, which has strong uh, control uh, given to you by uh, the uh, system, right? So you can think of the protection domain or the security domain as a set of capability that the subsystem has access to, right? Operation around the capability. So capability can be granted, which means the owner of the capability will give that capability to another process and then it will lose that capability. So it's owned by somebody else. The capability can be mapped so that way two user process can access uh, that uh, uh, resources and can be mapped with uh, different rights. So you can have, an, uh, like I said, uh, an access to a file which is uh, read-write and, and uh, uh, another capability which is access read-only, right? And capability can be revoked. In that case, you lose all the access to the uh, specific object. So it's really a way to provide fine-grained uh, access control. And, and usually inside a system, you have one uh, component which is responsible to distribute those capability and those rights. And this is really where the uh, principle of least privilege is important. So this component will make sure that all the operations that you have to do will operate with the least privilege that you need by giving, dispatching the right, distributing the right the proper way, right? In those microkernel also, which things you have to note is um, the protection domain or the security domain is a kernel object itself. So by itself, it also have its own capability, which means if you delegate or, or grant or map this capability to another user process, this user process will be able to access the whole uh, set of the object that was part of this domain. So what about support for legacy application and open source innovation, right? How such a platform can achieve that? And this is where I think we have to put hardware virtualization part of this bigger TCB. Uh, where you will have a, an, a specific application called a VMM for each VM that you're going to run. And you will be enforced the perimeter of what those VM can do just by using capability, right? But with hardware virtualization, there's a way to do more than just enforcing access to resources of the microkernel itself, right? And this is where I want to introduce a virtual machine introspection. So virtual machine is a technique which look at the state of your guests from the outside, right? And it's something that has been um, known since 2004. And uh, Farai built the first product, uh, uh, the, the malware detection using virtual machine using those techniques as well, right? So it leverage three property of virtualization. First of all, it's isolation. So you are outside, you are completely isolated the uh, guest operating system doesn't even know that you're there. 
it gives you a way to introspect. So you have the entire state of the get state at all times. So you can really uh, see and interact with the state if, uh, as you wish. And it also gives you interposition, which means you can intercept and change the behavior in this interaction between software and the virtual hardware, right? But outside of the VM, you don't know anything about what's inside you. What you see is just hardware notion, right? So, and this is where the uh, complexity around VMI is really to bridge that semantic gap. So you have to be able to make sense of what's running uh, inside that guest. So basically you will have, you will look at the state of the, of the guest and the only thing you see is those sequence of bits, right? And what you really want to see is that. So you have to bring that gap and bring the knowledge of the operating system to the uh, VMI component. So what about no more bugs, right? So Nova is uh, the Nova micro hypervisor. It's on 9,000 line of code. So even if I take the defect density from Linux, there's still a few bugs that uh, exist, right? And, and, and those are same as in Linux. You, you don't need 6,000 or 7,000 bugs. You only need one, right? So you really want to avoid all of these. The good thing is with um, the microkernel micro architecture, you have a very modular and a very um, uh, uh, approach with small components. So the small footprint allow for formal verification of uh, each service that you run. And that's what I want to introduce. So formal method are techniques used to model system as mathematic entities. And basically, it enables you to prove the correctness of the software according to the specification, the same way you would prove any mathematic theorem, right? So you prove that the system will behave only as specified, and which basically mean that the, there's no bug anymore. There, there may be a, a bad feature, but there's no bugs anymore. It's really what's specified that's uh, uh, take uh, precedence and, and it's more important. The important things about formal method, why is it possible today, was not possible uh, 10 years ago, is the advance in the um, uh, proof assistance. So now how you can have compute which help to uh, verify those proofs. So you can revalidate a proof at computer speed, which is very important because the size of those theorem are way bigger to the size of the proof of any mathematical theorem. Right, so you need to have a good uh, uh, compute assist in order to uh, do that uh, properly. So, and what does formal method do? It proves refinement using a simulation relation, which is a relation between state transition of system, and it relates the specification to the implementation, right? So the refinement formally captures the property that one system has a subset of the behavior of another. So basically, if you look at that graph in the implementation, for all transition that the implementation can take, there exists a transition for the specification which satisfies this relation, the simulation relation, right? So it refine the, and then we say that the implementation refine the specification. So if I take an example and you can look at the compiler, 
so the compiler with the implementation will generate all those states. So the, the compiler has the, the source code. You can do that as a specification. And all this, this code has different states. You can do that as a sequence of uh, a state that the program will go through. And the compiler has to implement that. And, and it, it, it will have to satisfy the simulation relation with all the state between the two. And this is uh, uh, compiled with uh, O2, so uh, O0, sorry, so it's lower optimization. So you have a bunch of code, but if you put O2 there, you would probably have just one line and at the implementation, and you will still have a way to relate those uh, uh, state between the specification and, and the implementation. What the uh, refinement also gives you is this notion of permittal property. So if you, have a real system connected through an internet switch, right? You can prove what we call the consolidation guarantee through the permittal property. So if you implement that system on top of a, a formally verified uh, hypervisor stack, you can prove by refinement that everything that happened in the implementation, the virtual world that you just virtualized, could have happened in the specification. So there was no new bug introduced by uh, this, which is very important, which means a customer which has existing hardware running on different piece of software will be able to consolidate that to a bigger equipment using virtualization and uh, proving those uh, that property will enforce the fact that it will run exactly the same way. <clears throat> so how does it work in practice? So you need to have an abstract model of your application. And then uh, the uh, uh, engineer will write the C++ source code. So we use C++ uh, at Bedrock. And um, they also write the uh, specification. The source code and the specification are processed through tool to be uh, used by the proof assistant. And the proof assistant will also take the abstract model and using proof automation. And proof automation are really key in that space because formal method was always known to be slow to achieve. And, and now with the, uh, the, the fact that we can do automation, it's really putting also the proof, the verification of the proof at the compute speed. And, and all those tools coming together show that uh, your uh, program refined to the abstract model. So any behavior that's possible for the C++ program and the restricted semantic of C++ because C++ uh, have very some obvious uh, uh, semantics somewhere, but uh, you can restrict it to uh, a certain subset and, and that's uh, behavior will be allowed by the abstract model. The interesting thing at the end of that process, the only thing that's important is the QED and the abstract model. Right? And all the security property can be proved around the abstract model. Since you have this refinement property, you know that those property will also hold to the source code. So, but uh, let's see on the real case uh, application, uh, what's, does it, what does this look like? So if I take the web server application, uh, what does that look like? You can now have on this platform, you can have your um, web server uh, in running in a separate VM if you want to implement it uh, with uh, virtualization and you have your database uh, implemented with uh, a separate VM. So you have a clear and clean separation between the two and you can distribute capability to make sure that uh, 
the perimeters and the uh, security domain is only the things that you want, right? So the, if the database doesn't have to have access to the network, the operating system, the Linux operating system inside that will not see the network interface card and will not see the network. <clears throat> you can even think of a, a, a capability distribution which gives the web server a capability with read access to the storage and goes to the database for write access. Of course, you will need some synchronization uh, between the two, but it, it's really up to the user to define his uh, perimeters and also to define his access control. You can furthermore implement that as a separate component, uh, a very tiny component, and that will give you either more fine-grained uh, 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 access control, so you can make sure that, for example, your web cache may not need to talk to the runtime plugin. So if it can, if the, only the web server can probably invoke Python or, or whatever plugin that you need, right? And that also gives you modularity, like I uh, said earlier. So every component in that picture will expose a very well-defined interface because you applying the principle of minimality and you will be able to replace implementation very easily, right? So if you have, if you want to run a different uh, network uh, protocol, you can just replace the network services, nothing else. And everything by respecting the same interface and distributing the same capability, you will be able to run the same application with a different network protocol. So in our picture, what is our own TCB? What, what's, what do we have to rely on for this to be strong and solid? And so what should we trust? So we should trust that the hardware operate according to the spec. And we should also trust that the compiler operate according to the spec. And we trust that the proof assistant is uh, uh, correct as well. That's uh, something we have to check. So to conclude, just expose an alternative to ensure an unbreakable TCB. And, and that's a composition of microkernel, virtualization plus VMI and formal method. So in order for that to be uh, uh, real and practical, all the component of that bigger TCB uh, need to be formally verified. The service, the application, the driver, the microkernel. And for that, you need to have tools which allow formal verification at scale. And I put a reference and I encourage you to go and there's a presentation that was done last week by Gregory Malika, which is a, the person responsible, the head of the formal method at Bedrock. And he had to talk about uh, how, can, uh, how can we do that at Bedrock. And this is what uh, uh, Bedrock is about. So after that, uh, I can take questions. Thanks, Osmond. Appreciate your, your coming and, and talking with us. Um, if there are questions, uh, please put them in the Q&A and we'll make sure we, uh, we get them out in front of Osman and his team as they're, they're here ready to answer your questions. So if you have some questions, put them out there. And like I said in the slide, I have some reference. So if I can share the slide with you, Jerry, mm -hmm. we'd be sure. happy to uh, give those reference to people. Absolutely. Guys, you're very quiet this uh maybe I was too fast. Maybe maybe I can I can start with the one question, maybe. Please. 
if there are no other questions. No, I mean, uh, so, so, yeah, using formal method, of course, is a, is a, is, is a, a way to improve, uh, to prove the security of the TCB. But, uh, so, you mentioned the, um, like these side channel attacks. So, mm -hmm. in your opinion, is it possible to use formal methods to reason about side channel attacks? Because that's that's a very good question. It's it's a very hard problem, right? And and yeah, I will say you may be able to. It's a it's a very interesting challenge. But you have also to reason about the hardware. And I know that's work at MIT by Professor Adam Chipala, which tried to move formal verification at the hardware level, right? You have project like Kami, which gives you a way to build formally verify hardware. And, and I know RISC-5 is, in, in, uh, is doing a lot of investment of that. So at some point, it's, it's probably not to reason about the touch channel attack with the way the hardware is designed today, but maybe to design a hardware with a, the same level of efficiency with give you mechanism to avoid those side channel attack. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, this is definitely a open problem for the future. Because it's all physical, like I said, yeah. right? You have two wired, as soon as you see a difference of behavior, you can infer something what's and, happening to the behind that, right? So you have to model all this world in order to reason about the side channel. Yeah. You probably need to model a concept of time that, that's that you that you don't do when you model uh, absolutely instructions absolutely. normally absolutely yeah so other questions your questions i can ask other questions please no i uh, i mean the, the other the other question i always i always have for um when people talk about the kernel uh of course a lot of bugs if not the majority we could say that typically is maybe not the majority but a good amount of bugs is still memory corruption uh, you always have to have a memory override yes that's there true. is some sort of memory corruption yes. so, and this is actually a good part of my research is on this but uh some people say okay maybe we should just give up on fixing memory corruption and we should just write kernels with uh, memory safe languages and uh but this is not happening and i think people are saying this since 20 years ago so 40 years ago but this is not really well, happening like i said earlier right so there's the uh, academic approach the academia which is very important so and that's it's very good that we have people thinking in those direction but in the industry as soon as you're going to tell them that you're going to run a, a kernel and it's going to run a, a five times slower even two times slower that uh, this other one Unfortunately, the industry will always go to. I'm hoping with this new uh, uh, security challenge in the IoT world, right? So it's uh, Internet yeah. of Things. There's no people behind, so it's not Internet of People anymore. So the things that we take decision, maybe it will force a, a move uh, further to the security world. But uh, like I said, for the uh, mitigation on Spectra, we had a, a, a way to rearchitecture of microkernel to reduce the mitigation. With the microkernel, the uh, the, uh, uh, the space that you're exposing is very tiny, low, 
but still you still have user space data in the kernel that uh, the uh, speculation execution process I channel would be able to expose. But just to change the architecture of that kernel will, was giving to give us like 20% of performance hit and customer yeah. didn't even want to hear about that. Right? So that's, that's probably the challenge of the saying, we're gonna use a separate language. And there's also the thing I was trying to bring as well, there's a lot of, lot of uh, background in the, in the industry about uh, knowledge about those existing languages that you cannot just match and replace, right? It's gonna take yeah. some time to, to get to that. So you, do, you, do you see maybe in 20 years, we will have a memory safe kernel or you think it, it, will, it will never happen? If we can give the, if you can take the performance requirement for the kernel and also for the user space, then yes, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the approach that we have in Bedrock is to try to bridge those gap where yeah. you're still providing the uh, uh, innovation and you're still running the legacy software and, and you give a chance to uh, re-architect or re-implement some of the function of the kernel outside of the kernel and doing formal verification. So it, it's possible to run Linux inside uh, uh, VM, but then the networking will be outside, right? So you, all the TCP IP will be outside and then you move out the, uh, uh, reduce the complexity of that kernel. And it's, it's kind of the approach that people which was working on Unikernel try to do, right? They try to reduce the using principle of minimality to say, I have this application. I only want to run this application. Everything else I want to get rid of and get this vertical stack, which only implement my uh, application. Yeah, and you mentioned IoT, and uh, unfortunately, I think IoT code is uh, the quality is typically much worse than, uh, for instance, Linux kernel. So, yeah. But but, I, but I, yeah, I, but I, ideally, I, ideally, the quality should be high since these things are in everyone's house and they access a lot of. So every, every time you put a device on the network you have an identity. So you have an IP yeah. address, you can be rich and the level of uh, uh, danger that can present, you can have an attack at scale, right? So it's not like I will attack one machine, I will attack thousands of machines or millions of machines at once, yeah. right? And it's not like in a IT world when you can restore your environment in a, a few minutes and uh, you will probably lose some money, but it's just money. In the, IT, in the IoT world, you will lose life, right? So if your self-driving car has a bug and, and need to be patched, right? The, the cycle to repatch that uh, software and to uh, take the proper action, that's not, uh, it doesn't scale. So you need to have a better uh, stack. And that's the reason why, like I said, when we, uh, I started to talk about Bedrock, the idea was really that is how can we provide a clear, strong foundation to build software on top without losing all the innovation, but at least we have a strong foundation. Today, the problem is everything is beyond sand, right? So if you break underneath, like you break the hardware, you break the kernel, everything's collapsed, right? And that's kind of be a solution for the new world of uh, IoT. Yeah. Any other question? I don't see any other questions, Professor. Okay. Well, Osman, we really appreciate you taking time to, to speak you. with us today. Uh, My pleasure. You know, it's been a long time coming. We've uh, 
we've uh, we've had to change a lot of things around it to make everything happen. So we yeah. really appreciate the the team from Bedrock joining us today, and hopefully we'll uh, this won't be the last time we'll have a chance to talk. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Thank you. Sure. Thanks Thank a lot. You for your Thank you for your presentation. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.